This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Matt Walsh. Before we start, in addition to our opening disclaimer, I wanted to share that I've known Matt for many years. I'm an investor in his fund and currently, or in the future, could work with some of the companies he mentions during this episode. With that said, Matt is one of the founding partners of Castle Island Ventures, which invests exclusively in the crypto industry, including monetary networks, financial services infrastructure, and Web3. Before founding his venture capital firm, Matt worked at Fidelity, where he led a number of the company's crypto initiatives. In our discussion, which is far-ranging, we discuss how his early experiences in crypto led to building a crypto VC, what themes his fund focuses on, his take on the 2022 collapse, the comparison to prior cycles, and his personal view on the appropriate regulatory response. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Walsh. Matt, thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be on. It seemed an obvious place to start was I first heard about you in 2014. I started at Fidelity in 2005 full-time. I was in the asset management group, worked through the financial crisis. Coming out of the crisis, I specifically started hearing about crypto and Bitcoin and the people pitching us, which is very passionate, but I would describe them as philosophically interested. And I really felt like no one could explain it to me in a way that made any sense. And I was lamenting to someone and they're like, well, there's this guy at Fidelity, Matt Walsh, and he's labeled as the one person who understands how Bitcoin works. You should go talk to him. And I'm lucky that I got that introduction and I met you, but I thought a fun place to start would be, how did you become one of the first people to be labeled as understanding Bitcoin before everybody else? Well, that's very generous. I'd say to say that I even understand it now might be an overstatement. I think we're all kind of on our own journey. My journey might have just started a little bit earlier than a lot of people in TradFi. So I joined Fidelity out of business school in 2014, had previously been a management consultant before business school, and joined Fidelity's strategy group, actually, before I was on the venture side of the house. And towards the end of my first year at Fidelity, there was this big scenario planning exercise to look at disruptive visions of what Fidelity might look like on a 10-year time horizon. And I remember being in this conference room, we were talking about a scenario around the evolution of capital markets. And there was a guy that was at Fidelity, still is this guy, Mike Willens. And he said, hey, does anyone know about Bitcoin? And can we sprinkle in some Bitcoin to this scenario around how capital markets could get disrupted? And I was sort of in the right place at the right time. I knew a little bit about Bitcoin. And I guess I could explain it a little bit, even though I think a lot of the things I explained back then, turns out they didn't happen. I mean, we were talking about things like colored coins and the fact that we thought at the time, certain people that securities would be traded on the Bitcoin network and that the DTCC itself would be disrupted by Bitcoin. And you know, obviously, not all of those things happen. But I think 
we're fortunate, you and I, to be at a place that had a lot of appetite for R&D. So how did that evolution go from looking at that stuff to begin investing in that stuff? There's this model at Fidelity called Scan Try Scale at the time. And this was in that scan bucket. It was an interesting enough thing to spend R&D resources on. There was a team that was stood up under Fidelity Labs that was kicking the tires from a R&D perspective. And I was lucky enough to work closely with that team out of my role in the strategy group. We mostly just tried to speak to as many interesting people as we possibly could. And so there was a group of us that would meet every week and we would go through everything we learned that week. And so some weeks that was, hey, we just spoke to X, Y, or Z founder and they're starting a business. Here's what it's trying to do. Or, hey, have you tried this new product? It's called Bread Wallet. And maybe we could fork the code and try to see if we could build a Bitcoin wallet that works and we can go buy things in bodegas. Or we started getting active in the mining space. Over time, that started to get less of a science project type of a feel to it and more of a feel of, hey, there might actually be a business here. I remember talking to people in the Fidelity family office group and them saying, hey, we actually have people that own a sizable amount of Bitcoin here and would like to custody it with someone that they trust. And they have it on a hardware wallet or they have it with the startup that they don't really have a high degree of trust in. So over time, it started to come clear that there was a big opportunity there. There was a big opportunity not only in the custody of some of these assets, but in some of the other businesses that would emerge if you had the view that blockchain-based assets would be a thing. Yeah, it's going to be a theme we're going to probably revisit throughout this is the emergence of an industry and then the growing up of an industry. So as you guys are starting to look at investing, eventually you start to partner with Nick Carter. So when did Nick enter the picture and how did you two get paired up? We had this little pilot fund at Fidelity that we weren't very public about at the time. It was called NDA. It stood for Network Defined Assets, but it was this play on non-disclosure agreement because we're not ready to be public with everything we were necessarily investing in. And at the time, I was just looking for someone with a high degree of technical aptitude and who's really passionate about the space. And through Chris Berniski actually was introduced to Nick. Nick had been doing a research project for ARC. So we got connected. He came up to Boston and I guess the rest is history. It became a great partnership. He joined us on that team. And in 2018, we left to start our own firm. And it's been a great partnership. So talk about that decision to leave. You and Nick decided it's time to potentially go off on your own. What kind of drove that decision? What were you thinking at that point in time? How had the industry evolved up to your time to leaving? I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I guess I was never sure what. I used to get so frustrated when people said, well, just follow your passion. And it's like, well, what if you don't know what that is? I remember I went to Babson College, a big entrepreneurial college, and people used to always say, well, just follow your passion. But if I think back to that, I mean, blockchains weren't even invented when I was in college. So I'm not sure how I would even know that it was my passion. But once I figured out that this was my passion and the deeper I got into the space and the more opportunity I saw, this started with just Bitcoin. And then, of course, Ethereum launched probably a year or two into my full-time analysis of this industry, and then start to see all these other projects that were launching via ICOs. And a lot of those things were nonsense, but there were kernels of really interesting business ideas. And it started to become clear to me that there would just be this massive opportunity to invest in some of the infrastructure that would enable a lot of the use cases for blockchains to be a thing. And I just thought, hey, this could be something where you spend the next 30, 40 years doing just that. And that's what I wanted to do. And was really, really fortunate to be leaving a place in Fidelity that was tremendously supportive of that vision and partnered with me from the early stages and made that process really gratifying and really simple. Deploying that first fund, you and Nick, what was 
the cycle like and what was the learning lessons you had of setting up your own fund? If you knew everything at the outset, you'd probably never do it because there's so many things that you just have to be taking this leap of faith. So we launched in 2018. I think the price of Bitcoin when we launched the fund was something like 9,000 and was on a slow decline to 3,400 or wherever we went during the COVID crash. So it, to some degree, it felt like we were just catching a falling knife. We had LPs that were saying, hey, well, I guess this experiment's over. Didn't really work out. And so part of it was just assuring the people around us that, hey, no, we've been through a couple of these before. Don't worry about it. This is a natural cycle. But we learned a lot. So we raised a $30 million fund, mostly did pre-seed, seed stage deals. Turned out to have been just a great time to be deploying capital. In 2018, it was a bear market in crypto. It really separated some of the people that were in this industry to get rich quick. Thinking about some of those 2017 ICOs, for instance, versus the folks that were just long-term oriented and wanted to be around and wanted to build things that would fit into the regulatory construct going forward, wanted to build teams. So we were really lucky to partner with an amazing cohort of entrepreneurs back in 2018. And reminds me a little bit of where we are now, to be frank. Obviously, this is a higher profile meltdown with some of the fraudulent actors that we've seen. But back then, there was just widespread apathy, I would say, in the industry. There weren't a lot of fidelities that were full-time looking at this stuff back then. It was few and far between, I would say, in terms of TradFi institutions that were actually at the party. I think it's a good time to compare the 22 to 2018 because a lot of people have looked at that and said they've been through cycles, but this is just so far worse on such a larger scale of fraud, malfeasance, just people losing money, kind of mainstream's opinion or rejection of the asset class. How would you compare and contrast 2022 to 2018? Certainly, it's a bigger black eye to have FTX go down. I don't think there's ever been anything at that scale in the industry in terms of the dollars that were raised by venture capital, the dollars that were held in their possession by their customers that were lost. So from that perspective, I think it's a huge scandal. If you just look at the year in general, though, I would say what's different about this 2022 into 23 cycle versus 2018, there's a lot more real infrastructure that has been built. I'm thinking specifically around the custodians and the exchanges. So CBOE is a regulated exchange. They weren't around in 2018 the way they are now. Fidelity now has a full-time custody and trade execution and an asset management group. That wasn't even launched in 2018. So in terms of who's actually in the industry, it just feels like the scaffolding is a lot better. Back then, the question was, hey, will these institutions ever come? And now they're here. It's just a matter of, will we professionalize the industry to be able to support what we want to build? Or is this going to continue to be this Wild West joke of an industry in certain pockets? I've known you for a while. I would say you're a mild-mannered person. I don't, Matt doesn't like fly off the handle, but you've been very passionate and you wrote a medium blog post about your disappointment in some of the actors, some of the events that transpired. What's been kind of your take and your opinion of what's happened and what it means? It's a big question. I mean, there's a lot of things that are in the industry's control that we are just not collectively doing right. And so maybe to talk about some of those things is just weeding out some of these bad actors that we continually put on a pedestal from a social media perspective. I think we need to demand more out of the entrepreneurs and the fund managers that are promotional in this industry. A lot of that, I think, has its roots in some of these things being unregistered securities offerings which has been a huge plague to this industry that we don't necessarily have 
regulatory clarity on who oversees the spot market and whether or not some of these tokens are securities or commodities. And if there's one positive thing that could come out of this whole fiasco with FTX, I hope is that we get some clarity on regulatory oversight for the spot market and whether or not some of these tokens are securities. And if they are securities, how to deal with them? What is the custody rule look like for a digital asset? And how can it fit into the fabric of the broader ecosystem? But back to putting people on a pedestal, I think we're talking a lot about some of the biggest entrepreneurs in the history of this industry have been the ones that just set up these offshore bucket shop exchanges. And we celebrate that. They issue an unregistered security offering and we celebrate that. I don't think we should. I think as an industry, we should also be a lot more aware of the conflicts. It is insane to me that investors thought that an exchange that owned a market-making firm could go public. I don't understand that logic. It's a conflict that would never exist in the traditional financial services space. I think it's a flawed framework for looking at a crypto business to say, oh, just because it's crypto, we should have these conflicts. Building on that, I think this token category is really troublesome from the perspective of just basic disclosures. So having vesting schedules for investors that are secretive or may not be released to the general public, I think that has the potential to be the next big scandal for the industry. So I think collectively, we need to start to hold ourselves more accountable. Because if we want to have an industry here, now's the time to really double down and professionalize. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. When I start asking a lot of questions about what it would be like to build a business in this space, I come across the FTX thing. And you said, you look at it and you have a proprietary desk, which used to exist in Wall Street, and then it was banned because it led to such bad behavior. There are things that in TradeFi, usually when I look at any regulation, any legal contract, I usually think to myself, somebody was screwed at some point, which is where they came up with, don't do that again, write that down. So we can't do that. And that's how regulation stacks on itself, sometimes erroneously so. But to your point on the crypto side, where you have an, an up market where bad actors and good actors want the industry to grow for different reasons, and you have these kind of runaways, what's the mechanism, like the gating mechanism in there? Because I think that there's such an anti-regulatory stance with some people in the industry. It's really hard to say, no, no, like there can be well-written regulation that is for the betterment of everyone to continue to play this game. I mean, I'm totally sympathetic to this libertarian view that we should have less regulation. I would counter that and say, in the FTX example, it's what's in the best interest of your customers? Is it in the best interest of a retail customer on FTX to have the largest source of alpha from a market-making prop shop perspective be an entity that they control? Is it in their best interest to have the number of tokens in some of these networks be completely factually inaccurate and that FTX slash Alameda actually controls a lion's share of these tokens and has accelerated vesting schedules? So in no world was anything that that company was doing in the best interest of their customers. So I think that's you can be anti-regulation, but I think it's really hard to build a business by being predatory against your customers on a long-term time horizon. That's not how the best businesses generally operate. In your opinion, do you think it's working with the SEC, the CFTC, with Congress? How do you think, as someone who's a larger investor now in the space, the best way forward is for people to try to find a way forward? I mean, it's really challenging. The one source of frustration here as a capital allocator has just been the lack of regulatory clarity around the spot market. And I would have thought that we would get something like Hester Peirce's safe harbor proposal passed. And I think that is the most common sense way to look at the space. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Hester Peirce 
who's an SEC commissioner, has put out several revisions, actually, of the safe harbor proposal that would give clarity on how to look at a token through the lens of, hey, it might be a security when it raises capital, but there's this path to decentralizing a network, and here's how you would do it. Here's the disclosures that you'd fall under. It's very clear to me that from a political perspective, that just can't happen with the current SEC leadership. So at this point, I think we do need an act of Congress to clarify just who has the oversight of these crypto spot markets. Is it the SEC? Is it the CFTC? And either is fine, in my opinion. It's not like we're going to have this world where you give it to the CFTC and they like crypto better and it's just going to be all glorious and up and to the right. I think we're going to have some basic financial disclosures here that need to be cleaned up. But we just need to know the rules of the road. Say that 80% of these things end up being securities. I actually don't think that that's the end of the world. I think now we live in a world where, okay, there's securities. How do you trade securities? How does the secondary landscape look like for securities? What does the custody rule look like? How do RIAs engage with these things? The building blocks fall into place once you get that clarity. So that's really what we need. I'm cautiously optimistic that this Congress can get there because I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure coming out of this FTX and Three Arrows meltdowns that a lot of retail lost money and a lot of venture investors lost money too, and their LPs are very upset about it. And so I think there are some forces that could push this to happening at some point in the next year. So cautiously optimistic there. Yeah, we had Commissioner Hester Purse on the podcast. I thought she was awesome walking through the proposal because I hadn't really understood it until I read a proposal about the notion of going from a security to what a non-security would be that usually when you're deemed something, you don't change your status, but that this is a very interesting asset class where you could have the first time where something might be issued as a security, only venture capitals like yourselves or accredited investors could invest upfront, but then you were also subject to a variety of other rules. You couldn't just dump it on retail or sell it on an exchange you built or your friend built for you. Makes a lot of sense. Just following up on that, do you think that it's more likely that we get an act of Congress before we get an SEC change and reinterpretation? So I think that you'll need an act of Congress to decide whether or not the SEC gets oversight or the CFTC. I'm not sure that they can figure it out on their own. I think for certain assets like Bitcoin, it's pretty clear it's not a security. But for a lot of other ones, it's going to be really challenging. I think there'll be some arguments between those two agencies on who gets oversight. And I think unless you get the act of Congress, you probably don't see large buy-side institutions and TradFi firms deploy these businesses that they want to deploy. They want that regulatory clarity. If you think about it from what is the total addressable market of this industry, if you just had clarity on that one issue, I think you 10x the TAM of pools of capital that can participate. All of a sudden, you're going to have things like tokenized real estate. You're going to have real-world assets come on blockchains in very meaningful ways. Could be much more than 10x. So I think you just look at a market here that demands that clarity and is not going to be satisfied with just the SEC saying, hey, we're clear on this. This is ours. That's not good enough for capital formation here. I think capital formation is being stunted at a pretty extreme level right now. Do you think you're in the minority or the majority of crypto participants that thinks that? So I think a lot of crypto participants just don't want the SEC to be the ultimate oversight. So I'm not necessarily taking a view on that. I just think we need common sense oversight. We need to know who's in charge. I think there is a pocket of the crypto industry that is crypto anarchists, don't want any regulation. Everything should be permissionless. Everything should be on-chain. I think that's fine. I think certain parts of that will always exist. I just don't know that that's where the best ROI is going to be for early-stage venture capital to invest in some of these 
gray markets where you don't have KYC procedures. It's just a different environment. I can understand wanting to be self-sovereign. And certainly, I think that's compatible from like a Bitcoin perspective on self-custody. But DeFi, where there's no KYC and DeFi, where there's no travel rule compliance, I have a harder time seeing how that's going to be a big market. I think one of the areas we've talked a lot about, and there's been some big losses, but you have a good perspective on it, was this notion of retail and yield generating products that coming from the fixed income side, you've got a zero rate interest rate environment. You have a new asset class. There's suddenly all of these proposed forms of yield that people are going to get access to. What went right there, if anything, and what went wrong in your perspective of how that industry grew so quickly and then imploded on itself? Well, I guess just about everything went wrong since the industry has basically been burned down is kind of the place to start. So not a lot of crypto lenders exist anymore. I would say that's been, if you look across the coverage area, been a mix of poor risk management, the launch of tokens that were securities and that were used as collateral in certain schemes. So those all failed. I don't think you can ignore the fact that there was widespread fraud either. And that's less of a crypto lending issue. But if someone is representing to you a balance sheet and a set of financial statements that are fictitious or doctored, that level of fraud happens in other markets as well. So certainly the crypto lenders were hit bad with that. And then you have, the, of course, the regulatory aspect of this is that the SEC took a position that some of these products were securities, but did not take action on others. And so it wasn't necessarily clear how the regulatory landscape was unfolding. The last thing I'd say is just We saw basically a huge bank panic in this category over the past year, where there was just a flight to the exits and a bank run on just about every crypto lending firm out there. We certainly saw it firsthand. We're investors in BlockFi, one of the businesses that declared bankruptcy as a result of this. So a lot of learnings. But I think the category itself will exist. Credit creation using blockchain-based assets will always be a thing. There is a natural demand there. I mean, these are digital bearer assets that trade on exchanges that require pre-funding. So there's some base level need for borrow in this industry, not as much as what got created though, I would say. So a lot of the incentives led to over-lending and just a general over-exuberance. So it will be back. I think it'll likely be back in a much more regulated environment. Probably some of the traditional financial firms that we're familiar with and that we know to be working on projects will be the ones that gather the lion's share of the market share there, if I had to guess. Is this an area, and we'll get into kind of your themes and categories next, but is this an area that you wouldn't invest in right now because you want more regulatory clarity after your experience with BlockFi? Or if you had a great founder come to you and say, I want to build it, I want to build it the way that I think is the right way, you guys would be interested in something like that today. I think it's a dangerous thing to say that just because an investment went south, you'd never back the category again. So it'd certainly be open for business on the category. My mental model is that this is a category that has to exist. It has to exist with better scaffolding, better underwriting for counterparties, ways to suss out fraudulent behavior in a much more streamlined fashion. So certainly I'd be interested in investing in the category. The way that we think about everything is people, market, product, deal terms. So if a phenomenal founder had a better mustrap in this category, I think we'd be all ears. Yeah, I appreciate you talking about because I think most people just talk about all their wins as if every investor especially venture not necessarily stepping into the fact that most of the stuff goes down. So let's move to your themes and some of the stuff that you're interested in today, the areas you're kind of most excited about. When we set up Castle Island back in 2018, we had this slide in our pitch deck where we talked about the three big macro trends that were happening. And 
The first one was monetary networks. So things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum, but also things like stable coins. So I continue to think that just the use of cryptocurrencies and US dollars on blockchain rails is a big mega trend, that there's a lot of infrastructure needed to bring that to life. The second big theme was and is financial services. And so all of this plumbing that we've been talking about from trade execution to market data, prime brokerage, these are all baseline requirements. Not only just if Bitcoin is going to be a thing, but if any blockchain-based asset is going to be around, we need really robust financial services infrastructure. And then the third thing, we always used to call it decentralized internet architecture. And then the Web3 thing came. And I think the interest in people nailed it on the branding there. But decentralized internet architecture, I think, is just a massive opportunity here. The ability really to have networks that are owned by users as opposed to centralized operators. So the way that we've thought about the world historically is we think those three things will all happen probably over different time horizons and probably less bullish on commercial use cases for Web3 in the near term and more excited about some of the boring back office stuff for financial services and monetary networks. But I think there is common shared infrastructure below those three things. And so regardless of if it's a share of a file storage network or whether it's Bitcoin or US dollar, you have to hold the asset somewhere. You have to custody it. You have to trade it. You have to get data off of it. You have to surveil your customers and make sure that they're not terrorists. You have to do these very basic things. And so a Castle Island deal is typically in that sweet spot of infrastructure that's not taking a directional bet on a particular crypto network. On the third category, would you call it decentralized internet architecture? Yes. Like that. It's harder to say than Web3. But why do you think that that's going to take longer than expected now? What changed in your thesis there? Well, nothing's really changed. I just think the product managers haven't really entered this space yet. A lot of these initial infrastructure projects are engineering driven. And so things like private key management are still really challenging. It's hard for me to imagine a world where a video game gets to mass production right now in a world where it's just impossible to self-custody your assets. And so I think some of these things will get unlocked by things like MPC custody and just workflow that incorporates biometrics and really obfuscates the fact that there's even a blockchain there. I just think it'll take a little bit of time for some of those product experiences to get built. It's really hard to use public blockchain assets, as you know. If you really want to interact with the bare metal, it's like, good luck. I think even just storing Bitcoin or Ether on a hardware wallet is going to be a bigger challenge than a lot of mass market folks would be interested in. I don't know how to explain it because I don't have a good example of where if you experience it, you're able to see the power of it and then also appreciate that this isn't going to be for everyone. It's one of these weird things of like when people talk about getting red pill or something, it's like, I love building systems. When you build something, you get to like the base level of how a bond gets created by a board, how then it gets traded. This dealer calls that person on a phone. Then this file gets sent there. Then this database checks it. Then there's 17 recon processes. Then this all happens at 30 different locations. Like, it's gnarly, but super fun for some bizarre reason to like break it apart. And then you're like, you step back on a complex system and you're like, I can't believe the thing's still standing. And so I've been having this thought recently because I've thought a lot about it with traditional securities. I thought about it when Southwest went down with the Sabre thing where you're like, I have a feeling I know exactly how this gets to this point where one day the whole thing crashes and everyone's like, how did that ever happen? People have been looking at that forever. Not to go too on a tangent, but when you deal with the bare metal, that's when you get that moment for me where I was like, holy shit, that's pretty cool. However, not everyone needs that moment. 
the mainstream doesn't need the proof that I got to be like, this is fascinating. So I guess, how do people cross that chasm if they've never experienced it? Do you believe that stuff like we had Adam Brotman on from Starbucks who's talking about their program, basically taking royalty points. You have Nike, spoken to them about some of their thoughts of where they're going. These are huge brands that are playing with it. But how do you handle the, I don't want to touch the bare metal, but then get the benefit of even why the hell are we using this? Why don't we just use a database? It's such a good question because there's two angles there. I think you do want more people having that delightful first experience. So as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about the first time I sent a Bitcoin transaction. I said, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this actually works. I transferred value point A to point B and no one was in between this. This is just unbelievable. I had a similar first interaction when I used decentralized exchanges, just interfaced with them directly through a hardware wallet. It's just a breathtaking experience. And as soon as you do it, you know that there's going to be a massive industry built behind this because it's just such a powerful technology. I want more people to have that experience. And you know, I've had some of that lately with things like MPC custody, where it just really blew my mind how advanced some of this stuff is. And I think the field of zero knowledge will be where some more of those experiences, you know, we have them over the next couple of years. But I think what it takes for these things to get to mass market is just better products and better user experiences that are otherwise not possible on web too. And some of that will blur the line into things that right now we don't have regulatory clarity on. But you could imagine getting fractional ownership in a product that a company launches or prepaying for an experience that an artist is launching and getting into an event through some sort of a token-gated mechanism. So I think ultimately it's going to come down to the entrepreneurs just building great products and great user experiences and people wanting to do things that probably aren't possible today that are uniquely enabled by blockchains. That's going to be what pushes people into this. I think once we get some clarity on this security token issue too, I think just more stuff will be out there. You'll be able to use fractional ownership in real estate as collateral in DeFi and just things that we aren't really talking about right now as an industry, but with some degree of regulatory clarity will be really compelling. So you mentioned it several times now, this notion of securities versus non-securities and Basically, the SEC has a definition that says if you issue something and it passes this test called the Howey test, it could be deemed a security. There's other tests, but that's the one everyone focuses on. You talk to a lot of big brands. You talk to a lot of big investors. Is that kind of the common, hey, we have ideas, but this is our main concern that comes up is the potential realization that you've issued a security? I think it's that, but I think the problem is even more primitive, where a lot of the entrepreneurs that are launching these quote-unquote governance tokens, no one knows what they're talking about because it doesn't make any sense. What they actually want to launch is something that represents a security interest or has a rev share, but there's this delicate dance around, I don't want this thing to be deemed to be a security. I don't want to be overseen by the SEC. Because if I am a security, the SEC hasn't been in a rush to greenlight ATS venues and give clarity on the custody rules. So it's a death blow for your company if you get deemed to be a security. So as a result, all of these products are super janky. And it's like, okay, we have this governance token. Well, what does it do? Well, it gives you the ability to vote on the future of the project. And maybe at some point you'll vote in fees and then we're a security. So you kind of get in this loop that doesn't work. And I think it doesn't attract a lot of serious TradFi people. It doesn't give you the ability to raise a lot of capital from those folks either. So I think if you had the clarity on, hey, here's what it takes to launch a token that's backed by real estate and here's how it would trade, here's how this would all work. We're going to give clarity on this custody rule thing because digital assets are different from non-digital assets. All of a sudden, you have a whole different ballgame and you can actually launch some of these products. And 
what a lot of these entrepreneurs actually do want is something that looks and feels like a security, and they just don't have that now. It's such an interesting point for people that aren't as deeply involved in the day to day is that one of the weird memes of the crypto group is that this thing's worth zero and it's all the silly shock and awe thing. And I always thought it was funny because I'm like, you know, if they say anything otherwise, they're clearly a security. So if you pitch yourself as I've got a token, I want to sell equity to everyone I know, and I think we're going to make a billion dollars doing X, Y, Z. Like when I looked into just briefly the library case, the blockchain for YouTube, everything in the case is exactly what you'd think of like not to do. I tell people, hey, we're going to make a lot of money. You should own this. If you own this, you're going to get rights to our profits in the future. You walk like a duck and you sound like a duck. You might be a duck. So then the funny opposite side is you get someone who maybe you believe is technically brilliant or has done something and they're looking you in the face trying to honestly say as either they've been advised or they're smart enough to know this has no value. It's worth zero. It's worthless. And yet it's trading at some billion dollar market cap. And when you have someone in TradeFight try to square that, that sounds and feels a lot like a scam. And a scammer can say the exact same phrase. And you're in this weird, like reading someone's mind, if what they mean is they're actually trying to build a company or just steal all your money. 100%. I think there's probably a lot of crypto VCs that would agree with you. And they would say, it's kind of hard to tell. Is this person in on the joke that, hey, this thing looks like a security, but we're just kind of ignoring that for now? I'd say a lot of the things that FTX were involved with fell into that category, for instance. Or does this genuinely have some sort of an attribute where it isn't a security and maybe it shouldn't be? And I think there's actually some projects in that category too, but it's very difficult. I would say the lion's share of things that I've seen since I started in this industry that were issued with tokens ought to be securities. I think that 95% plus of anything that's ever been issued is probably an unregistered securities offering. Now, the problem is, let's say that you agree as the entrepreneur that this should be a security. There's just no path forward right now. You can't get approved by the SEC. You can't have this thing traded on a secondary venue. So it really is a death blow. And so the equilibrium from a game theory perspective is to go out as the entrepreneur and say, wink, wink, nod, nod. This is not a security. Maybe there's going to be some clarity on this going forward. I mean, they could issue a security. They could issue equity if they wanted. They could go down a traditional path. They could go down a traditional path for sure, but they couldn't do things like get their token in the hands of 200,000 retail users that are using the thing for provisioning file storage. It would be really difficult to launch something like that. But your theory, though, let's say the Congress says SEC is in charge and we're going to name a bunch of these things securities and a bunch of non-securities. Aren't you still going to be subject to accredited investor laws? And is there really going to be 200,000 people owning anything? I think so. I think there's a path forward there. I think there's a path where folks can participate in some of these offerings. I think the SEC has actually made some great strides on their accredited investor policy over the past few years and allowing people to come into that framework under different regimes, different exemptions. And I think that has a chance of continuing. So I don't think the securities law is incompatible with public blockchain assets. I definitely think that there needs to be some additional disclosures, some things that are uniquely considered since some of these assets are born digital, so to speak. And we need to have better frameworks around what does the custody of these things look like? How do you ensure that that custody is legitimate? We need to have things like token vesting schedules be much more public. So there's some blockchain specific things, but I think it's possible that a lot of these products could be very compelling, even if they were securities. How do you handle stuff if you go down this path just for fun? Let's appoint Matt, the chairman of the SEC for the day, and I give you all this power. How do you handle like 
KYC or AML and the privacy of, and then using something like DeFi. There's one thought that you have these parallel universes of crypto and TradeFi, and that they're just never going to exist in the same spot. We're probably of like mind that I think that eventually they're both going to learn from each other and grow into something very different than we see today. But how do you handle something like that, like a DeFi and knowing who your end customers or who you're trading with? So I think above all else, and we haven't said it yet, but I think maintaining sovereignty at the individual level and maintaining freedom of speech over your money should be a cardinal principle here. So you should always be able to withdraw your crypto assets from an exchange and to hold them in your own self-custody, self-sovereign. You know, you can do that with cash today. You can do that with bars of gold and put them under your mattress. So you should have the equivalency in public blockchain-based assets. And anything that would oppose that, I'd be tremendously opposed to. That being said, within the context of DeFi, if you want to trade on venues or things that look like venues, I think it's very reasonable to expect that you'd be KYC'd. I wouldn't want to be in a DeFi pool with North Korea on the other side of that transaction. I think from a legal risk perspective, that's just a bridge too far. And certainly, you're not going to get any reputable financial institutions to do that. So I think you'll end up in a framework here where you need to have KYC if you want to engage with some of these large pools. And I think the opportunity there from an entrepreneur perspective is to build some of that bridging that allows you to participate potentially in a zero-knowledge way. I don't want to give my personally identifiable information over to Uniswap, but having some sort of a process where I can onboard and I can attest that I control this wallet and I have a social security number and I'm not on the OFAC list, that's great. And I think that that's where some of the best talent is actually building right now, is in the field of zero knowledge and in building some of these things in a way that doesn't really forfeit your PII. So that goes to your second theme that you guys focus on, which is those financial services infrastructure. Tell us a little bit more about how you define that space more deeply and some of the businesses you're most excited about that you've invested in to date. So the most basic way to think about the financial services vertical is there's centralized financial services and there's DeFi. And we invest in both. I think DeFi has historically been a lot harder for us to grapple with for some of the reasons that we've already mentioned around some of these tokens look like securities. On the centralized side, I think it's just been historic time to build some of this infrastructure. Because if you're sitting there and you think that Bitcoin's going to be a thing, and you think Ethereum is going to be a thing, you think stable coins are around, you think that people will tokenize real world assets, just look around at what's lacking. So you have really terrible custody options, historically speaking, they're getting a lot better now. The exchange landscape was very immature. Market data didn't even exist. So we incubated a business called CoinMetrics, which is focused on network data and market data. Seems so obvious. But in 2018, if you were a crypto custodian and you wanted to just mark your customer books, you didn't even have a reference rate for something like that. It's like, what is the price of Bitcoin? Well, it's different on Bitfinex from Coinbase. So how do we come up with a methodology? In equity world, I mean, this was figured out a long time ago. So now it is in the public blockchain space. So we just kind of have a top-down category by category view of the categories that have to exist. We try to find the best teams in those categories. One of the parts of that category, when it comes to like custody and trading, and I think maybe you can talk about what are the other investments, Talos, which I find fascinating is that with a bearer asset, the custodians have the asset and either you're going to be lent credit to trade against it or you've actually got to physically move stuff. And so this is where I think that sometimes people look at it as archaic because people now, because so much trust has been built up over the years, which we can come back to, 
of trust being eroded versus built up that when you trade Apple, nobody asks you where it is or how many shares Apple has at custody or can you please prove that you have all the Apple shares you said you have? That just is not a thing anymore. I mean, it wasn't long ago that people actually owned certificates and brought them to their broker to trade. But in the trading custody space, there's this weird thing of like the custodians usually do own some sort of trading venue. I think Talos is a really cool company you guys have invested in and try to build in this space specifically. Yes, we've made a few of these market structure bets over the years. So Talos is a trade execution company. The real thesis there in that category, as well as prime brokerage, I would say, where we have another investment called Hidden Road, is that this market structure that we have in crypto right now is not the market structure that we ought to have. So the idea that your custodian is also your exchange and is your retail broker just seems fundamentally flawed to me. The reason that this evolved in the TradFi space is because it just is better for customers. You don't see the New York Stock Exchange having a custodian and a prop shop attached to it. It's just incompatible. The conflicts of interest there are extraordinary. And so I think ideally what you'd want is some sort of a trade execution platform that would engage with a bunch of different venues and OTC desks. And that's certainly where I think the market will evolve to. And on the credit side, I think this idea of prime brokerage is a really good idea. And I think it exists for a reason in other asset classes. And I think we will come to embrace the idea of prime brokerage as an industry after some of these monster blowups. And so the idea that every market-making firm got blown up on FTX because you had to have assets there and there's no tri-party custody agreement, that will change. And I think that'll change in a hurry. Maybe if there's a good thing that comes out of this whole meltdown is that I think there'll be an acceleration towards a market structure that's just better for customers. On the prime brokerage, one thing in the news is Genesis, and they were the prime broker in the space and considered the central trading thing. Like I remember when Luna blew up and then Three Arrows blew up, it was like, well, it wasn't Genesis. Almost like everyone points to the next biggest thing and says like, well, FTX didn't blow up, then FTX blew up. I was like, well, Genesis didn't blow up, and Genesis blew up. And now everyone's like, well, as long as Binance doesn't blow up. And I'm like, Every time you guys say that this thing doesn't blow up, we have bad luck. I'm actually of the mind that it's good for these things to blow up because I don't want them around. They're going to blow up eventually anyways. You want to blow up the smaller they are, not the bigger. But on Prime Brokerage with Genesis, you had the beginnings of Triparty, and yet it's at the epicenter in some ways of a lot of these interconnected loans and giving that trust. So how would a Prime Broker have helped in the FTX situation? This Prime Brokerage name gets thrown around to a lot of entities that I don't really consider to be prime brokers. I consider them to be brokerage firms. I mean, you face them for trades and you trade against them and you face off against them. You get liquidity provisioning from them. But I think really prime brokers ought to be unconflicted. And so what I would really want my prime broker to be if I'm a large trading firm is to be enabling me to do things like pre-funding different exchange accounts and enabling an over-the-counter trading workflow. But I don't really want them trading against me. I don't want them seeing like all my flow and be able to take positions against me. So I think that whole category probably needs to get reimagined. I don't think that that Genesis business model is necessarily fundamentally flawed. I just don't think they were doing exchange prefunding. So I think it'll evolve. Certainly, the idea of having these bilateral relationships with these credit desks, I think, will be less of a feature of the market on a go-forward basis by large institutional participants. What is your take? I mean, now that we're kind of down this hole, you got the Genesis and the FTX saga on playing. Today, it's middle of January. What's kind of your view on where these things stand? And everyone's just guessing. It seems to be all that we do on crypto Twitter is listen to people's rumor mills about what's going to happen with all of these. But where do you see them going? 
So I think the FTX one is a lot easier to say how it's going to go. I think if there's justice in the world, I think Sam will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, likely face some serious prison time. And I think the umbrella in that FTX crime family, all the executives that were clearly in on it that knew about this will be brought to justice. So I think it's pretty clear how that'll unfold. I think there'll be attempts to make the customers whole. We'll see how those go. But there's a big venture portfolio there. There's certainly things that could be clawed back. So I think that one's pretty straightforward, unless there's some sort of a big curveball that I'm not seeing on like the campaign finance side. The DCG one's a little bit harder to diagnose because there you have an actor that is so intertwined in this industry with Grayscale being the largest crypto asset manager. You have Genesis, of course, historically been one of the largest spot desks in the industry, has the derivatives desk, had the lending desk on pause, obviously, now. And there's just a level of restructuring there that clearly has to happen. And for anyone to tell you they know how it's going to work is probably lying to you at this point, because I don't know how you'd know unless you had intimate knowledge of exactly what the document said between Gemini and Genesis. These are the types of things that are very, very granular. And so I don't think any talking head would really know at this point who has the leverage. I can tell you as someone who's been through restructurings and looked at lots of restructurings, and signed agreements to look at all the documents, you still don't have 100% certainty of how it's going to happen because it usually comes down. I've talked about this. Anyways, look at the documents, where the and was, the comma, and then that leads to the subjective interpretation of who had the best lawyers craft the best documents. So coming out of the financial crisis and reviewing lots of documents, you could tell who had the best lawyers and who had shitty lawyers. It was obvious of well-written. My pure, wild, Eric speculation... I haven't seen any of the documents. I'd love to see them. I still couldn't tell you what was going to happen. And I would definitely be able to probably place a bet on what would happen. And this is what will be really interesting in the whole securities thing. So like the social media, the appearances by people did not necessarily align with what it seems like what we've at least been leaked, the legal documents look like. It does feel like the legal documents probably gave DCG much more of a firewall than was expected than people had previously believed. Now, whether it's legal or what it's going to hold up in court or what a judge might say at some point, I don't know. But man, what a mess. It's a total mess. And I think if you think about it from the perspective of what's going to get the best recovery here, I don't think it's a bankruptcy filing right now. I think that really limits the options. And having some time here would do a lot of things. Number one is it would put the venture portfolio in a different light in terms of how much value there is there. It would certainly potentially put the crypto asset portfolio in a different light. And it would allow for more time to just come up with a prepackaged option here that would result in a going concern business that shared some upside potential with creditors. So I hope that's where we can get to, because I don't think it's in the best interest of the industry to just have that whole complex disappear. The last thing I'll say about this is I think usually that's always almost like the best case that you want to do something out of court when you can. The reason why you want to go into court, in my opinion, is stuff's moving so quickly, like the FTX situation. I found terrifying. That was a great example of you need to press stop immediately. You have a 24 hour exchange. You've got people's money. You've got money leaving, coming and going. You've got people getting on airplanes, flying down to demand. Like the whole point of bankruptcy is you have us run on the bank. People are trying to claw ahead of other people to get whatever the last remnants are. Basically, it's one of the greatest pieces of capitalist legislation ever written because you can call time out and say, I need a second to figure it out. Now, Lawyers get paid a lot of money and it can get abused and maybe all the creditors don't get treated, but it's typically better than Lord of the Flies, just pick who wins and who dies based on who's the loudest or the fastest. So that was a great example. I agree with you. And then it really comes down to, does someone have priority or something that they can flex over someone else to say, 
you let me money and I know you don't have enough for everyone, but see here, this says that I have priority over you. So me and Matt both lend money to Nick, but Matt said, as your partner, just so you know, if anything ever goes sideways, there's this little provision that says I get paid first. That's when you want to go because you want to see that that doesn't happen. I'd say just to be fair to DCG here, the FTX story is just a case of outright stealing customer deposits and investing a billion one dollars into a mining company in Kazakhstan and a AI research company. DCG has put the lending business on pause. I think they are trying to go down that path. I totally agree with you on the need for having the bankruptcy process. It would have been interesting to just send the Navy down to the Bahamas to prevent some of the stuff that was happening in the last 48 hours there. I think that's really what would have solved it. Yeah. It wasn't to put them in the same light. I think it's that when people hear bankruptcy, I think some of the older crypto investors have been through it. It doesn't mean everything goes to zero. It really has tried to somehow come out with a reasonable, coordinated response in attempts to try to solve as many of these problems as possible. And I think that there's good reasons to do it and there's not. And then there's also, to me, just as an outside observer, when something is non-bankruptcy, but it's not going well, that's usually an odd sign to me if someone doesn't have leverage over somebody else, because there's two ways to go in. Either you file, because like what actually Sam did, now he's alleging he was pressured into do it, and he didn't actually want to do it and said not to do it, which I find absolutely fascinating. But the company says, holy shit, we've lost control. The safest thing for everyone is for us to voluntarily. The other is if your creditors are really mad at you and someone has leverage to do it because you owe them because you have a default on their some document somewhere, you can force them into bankruptcy. So when someone's not, I'm usually very curious as to why. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. Little glass scuttle that I have to ask you, just because I think it's one of your favorites, is I don't think you're going to participate in the GTX round. Did you see the most recent, what I thought was a joke, but apparently is not a joke, that Three Arrows is attempting to raise another company? I would not expect to see anything associated with the Three Arrows founders in our portfolio anytime soon. Certainly would say buyer beware on that front. Last theme is monetary networks. What are you kind of excited about in that space? Obviously, I'm really excited about Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin will be around for a very long time. That's sort of a boring answer at this point. But where the biggest growth is coming in terms of just the entrepreneurs that we're talking to is infrastructure around stable coins. And so on the regulation front, I actually think that's where we might actually get a very comprehensive bill on stable coins this year, maybe before we get spot market clarity. So I'm really excited about just the idea of moving the US dollar on blockchain rails. I think from a geopolitical perspective, this is also one of the more interesting aspects of public blockchains. I think you'll see countries spontaneously dollarized on the back of their citizens being able to access the US dollar as a savings technology on a smartphone without an intermediary. I think that's a super powerful idea. And we're already starting to see this in some of our portfolio companies that service companies and service individuals in places like Africa and Turkey and Venezuela, you're starting to see just retail adoption of US dollar technology that start to take off. So I think that's the type of thing that has the ability to change what the world looks like from a how many currencies there are perspective. So more to come on that, I'm sure. But this idea of crypto dollars, stable coins continuing to grow, I think will be something we're talking about for a long time. And from the US's perspective, it actually makes a lot of sense to lean into this technology because it has the ability to further entrench the dollar as the apex predator of fiat currencies. So the ability to export these dollars at massive scale certainly would be in the best interest of the US from a geopolitical perspective. I love stable coins. Probably one of the first things I remember after we spoke about what could actually be an interesting idea. But one thing just pushing back of like, 
totally understand why the United States should want it and be excited about it. But don't you think in countries like Turkey or where there's a government that might not be thrilled about losing their currency? I know why the people might want it and why that could be a symbol of freedom or a way out, but why other countries would push back massively against that. I think they will push back massively against it. And I think that's why some of these business models where it's almost a Craigslist style transaction, these are the ones that are really interesting to look at and monitor. We haven't invested in any of them, but I think if you look at just the adoption of some of these peer-to-peer networks in those countries, it's breathtaking. So people are literally meeting each other on the side of the road in doing a fiat currency transaction in response, getting a stablecoin in their mobile wallet. This is happening. The genie is very much out of the bottle. This stuff exists. You can point at the adoption of Tether as being a good proxy for this. There's a lot of people in China that have historically used Tether as a way to get money out of that country. So I think you'll see things like that continue across the whole spectrum of stablecoins. What's some of the craziest ideas that you get put in front of you? Not that you said no to, but are really like, wow, I hadn't thought. Like The summer job was super interesting. It all makes sense to me. It sounds very reasonable and exciting. But what are some of the more wild out there ideas? We've talked to a few entrepreneurs that are seeking to build almost a use the DAO construct to build new nation states. I think that's a really interesting concept. I'm not sure it's necessarily venture backable to create these seasteading or individual city states governed by a DAO. I think that's a really interesting thought experiment, sort of a Neil Stevenson vibe to some of these things. That's probably the furthest out there in terms of stuff that we've looked at. But these aren't necessarily the people that you just dismiss out of hand, which is probably what makes it more interesting than not. These are well thought out ideas. Not sure that they'll get funded, but those are probably some of the more interesting ones we've talked to recently. So speaking of founders, you talked about that, you know, the person is the thing that you put at the top of your priority. And it's very interesting where you guys do seed and pre-seed. It's hard to think about anything else that's going to be important of who you're backing. But a lot of other people rely on it that after you've picked them, that people think, all right, they have a chance. So I guess bring it down for us of what do you look at? What have been kind of your pattern recognition of people you've really enjoyed working with and people that you're just like, as great of an idea as I don't want to. So there's this concept of the idea maze and having gone to the bottom of the ocean in terms of the questions and the understanding below a product. And that's where we try to get to. I have a three-year-old daughter and she asks why maybe like six times in a row sometimes. And I was saying to my wife that that's actually probably what makes the best diligence is to just continue to ask why and why and why. So some of the best entrepreneurs have really had that ability to just go as deep as you possibly want. I still remember the first time I met Anton Katz at Talos and he was telling me about trade execution and he just had thought about everything at such a precise level that literally in the first meeting, I knew that we were going to do the deal. That's really what we're looking for. And you can tell someone's passion by how deep they get on that. If they're surface level, they're not going to have a really tailored view on the regulatory landscape for a very specific product feature. Maybe they wouldn't know some of the other past failures in that category. That's another thing I look towards is, okay, how is this different from company X, Y, or Z that was in this category? And they don't know the differences. That probably tells me that they're maybe not as deep as they need to be. We like any of these podcasts, the same question every time. What are you most excited to invest or back or even build yourself over the next six months and over the next six years? So the next six months, I think some of the lowest hanging fruit is just really basic financial plumbing, things that need to be addressed. And so compliance software is probably the most boring category, but probably where we're going to see the most near-term 
things like travel rule compliance, I think are really critical, on-chain forensics, just tracking wallet addresses. So that part of the market, I think, will do sensational cybersecurity too within that next six months. Over a six-year time horizon, I think real-world assets will be an unbelievably large market. And the idea of taking things that exist in the real world and putting them onto a digital record, a public blockchain, enhancing them from a product perspective, and customizing digital assets from a programmability perspective is a huge unlock. And I think we're going to see a lot of these businesses be formed on the back of clear regulatory paths forward, which I'm optimistic about, cautiously optimistic about. So I'd say real world assets on a longer term time horizon. All right. Usually I don't do this, but because it's you, I'm going to. I get pitched these ideas a lot of moving assets to crypto rails just because of my background of being in these two worlds. You get pitched people that want to put bonds and stocks on blockchains and do the DTCC thing you talked about of getting around it. And then you talk about private credit and commercial real estate and structured products like illiquid traded markets moving. What, in your opinion, will move first to crypto? Do you think we'll get regulation that'll be obvious for traditional assets? Or do you think we'll focus on some of these non-traditional assets moving to crypto rails first? Man, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be deploying capital more aggressively into one bucket or the other. My guess is that you'll see something in the real estate market pop first. I think there's a lot of attention going into the real estate market. I think it's a very well-defined market from a regulatory perspective. And so you don't need a lot of regulatory clarity on what needs to exist, for instance, for a REIT to be a REIT. And you don't really need tons of regulatory clarity around how a blockchain could interface with that beyond some of the things that we've already talked about around the secondary market trading and good control location from a custody perspective. So I think just pound for pound based on the entrepreneurs that are looking at the real estate space, that has the highest potential to pop first. Longer term, though, I think it's inevitable that every bank would be engaging on a daily basis with a blockchain. Just look at the overnight repo market, the tri-party repo market, and how inefficient that is to just clear everything through Fedwire and these $50 million batches. These are just records that I think you can move around. So I think we'll see treasuries tokenized. I think we'll see wholesale CBDCs probably. Probably not retail in the US market. I think that would just kill the commercial banking sector. But wholesale CBDC for the purpose of overnight repo, that's a total no-brainer. Think about how much cost could be pulled out of the financial plumbing, uh, just the overnight market there. So that'll happen, but that'll take a while longer. Matt, thank you. This is always fun to catch up with you. Thanks for agreeing to come on. Thanks so much for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 